Tonight, the growing economic divide between the 1% and the rest of the country. The real reason for that divide and the signs that working and middle-class Americans are fighting back. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Many economists, political analysts, and a growing number of ordinary Americans have come to believe that over the last few decades, a widening economic divide has decimated the American middle class and put the American dream out of reach for millions. But is this an accurate portrayal of the United States as it is today? According to a powerful new documentary called Americon, the answer is yes. And it argues that this reality is the result of the conscious policies of powerful corporate interests whose chief goal was to destroy the American labor movement, a mission which they had largely accomplished. But as the film also shows, there are now signs of an American labor renaissance. And one example of that is right here in New York, where a group of Staten Island workers and former workers unexpectedly defeated Amazon, one of the most powerful and richest companies in the world, in a union election. Here's a clip. Every time we come here, we eat the same thing. I want pizza, 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 pizza. I, I said, I don't know. Chicken nuggets? No, pizza. That's the second thing y'all always want. Chicken nuggets? No, remember, you remember the handshake? No. Back up. Ah. You know, I, I, I love my kids more than anything. Mm -hmm. There you go. For me, I always want to be a strong role model for them. Uh, somebody that's always like, you know, daddy's going to take care of things. They may not understand completely what's going on, but they understand that, you know, their dad got fired for speaking out against Amazon. Everything that happened to me is for them. I want them to be able to grow up in a society where they don't have to struggle as hard as we do. That's what we need to fight for. Christian Smalls helped to organize Monday's walkout by workers at Amazon's fulfillment center on Staten Island, protesting the company's response to the coronavirus crisis. We got 10 cases in the building. They didn't let my people know. My people still in there working. And we are joined now by Chris Smalls. Christian Smalls. Chris Smalls, an assistant manager, was the first to organize a walkout in the United States. Tell us what happened to you after the protest. Uh, I was terminated two hours later. Over here. Come on, I'm coming. 
started this. We all know what happened in Alabama. Don't take it as a loss. We know Amazon spent $25 million to stop that warehouse from unionizing. But let me tell you this. We are beginning our efforts in Staten Island. And joining us now are Sean Claffey, the executive producer and director of Americon, David Pedersen, the film's producer and writer, and Chris Smalls, the co-founder and president of the Amazon Labor Union, the union that defeated Amazon on Staten Island. Welcome, all of you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Sean, let me start with you. And Dave, you can break in to, if you want to if you want to also answer um, you know, when I first uh, heard about your film and that Chris was in it, um, I assumed it was about the victory of, uh, of the Amazon Union and Staten Island um, and the Staten Island Warehouse, um, but it isn't. Um, in fact, the film ends uh, the day that uh, the Union won in Staten Island. So aside from what I said in the introduction, um, Sean, what do you what do you say the film is about or or if you prefer what was your intention in making this film so i think the the film is about uh income inequality in america the the fall of the middle class the um how wages have been stagnant for the last for the middle class and working class for the last 45 years and there's been an upward redistribution of about 50 trillion dollars from the working class and middle class up into the one percent and uh you know it's it's not right um you know we had the greatest middle class in the world and, and um we've lost that we're now number 12 and falling so you know i think uh both of us um grew up and were able to uh our families were immigrant families that were able to ascend to the middle class and and that path has to be maintained David, it seems like you shot most of the film um, before the Amazon victory in Staten Island, uh, the victory that made Chris famous. So uh, how did you foresee that he was going to be playing such an important role in the resurgence of the seeming resurgence of the American labor movement? What did you guys know that most labor veterans and anybody else did not know? Well, the well end, do you want do you want to take that, Sean? Okay, yeah, you started it. Okay, either one. Yeah. Um, when I first met Chris, it was just after uh, his walkout. Um, and I could just see how tenacious he was and his whole team was. And uh, this is before they were even thinking about starting a union. But, you know, they were uh, fighting for the rights of the, of, of, uh, the people that worked under him. And... Um, you know, I just we, we connected it and I thought it would be a great story. I wasn't sure if they when when they were going to win. I knew that they were never going to give up. <laughs> and Dave, anything to add? Yeah, it was, you know, it's been a long process for the film. You know, we basically because of following Chris and it took five years to film wow. because we didn't have a great ending to the film because it was kind of a little depressing. But give it to Sean, you know, Sean's a very dogged filmmaker and, you know, kept 
crafting and taking out his scalpel to make the film better. And it's like, let's just keep filming. Let's keep filming. <laughs> and even after the Alabama uh, vote, Sean's like, let's just keep filming, filming and filming and filming. And, you know, we hit it when Chris, you know, knocked out of the park with Staten Island. And I, I think, you know, it gives a great ending or a film where people will walk out, you know, feeling inspired instead of feeling like, yeah. you know, disheartened. So, Chris, we'll talk in a moment. In a few moments, we'll talk about what's happened uh, with the union and Amazon since the victory. Uh, but first, tell us about your involvement in the film. Uh, why did you decide not only to participate in the film yourself, but to have your family participate in it? And and what do you think is your contribution to the film? Yeah, like Sean and Dave said, you know, um, originally I thought I was just going to be a small piece to a larger messaging of the film. Um, and, and I still consider that to be, but I, we didn't know, uh, you know, here I am sitting as, you know, the president of the Amazon labor union. We didn't know that any of this would transpire. So for, for me participating and giving people you no know, real time, um, uh, inside look of, of what's going on on the ground and into my personal life. It's, it's, it wasn't an opportunity that was always given to me. You know, it kind of was the media, you know, jumped all over me after I, I let a walk out. And then um, I continued to garnish media attention here and there from doing demonstrations. But uh, this film gives people an inside look of what it takes to uh, juggle family life and also uh, the struggles of, of defeat. You know, there's ups and downs in the film. And, uh, you know, you connect with real people. And I, I think that that was resonates with a lot of people. My story. Well, you know, and as Dave said, it provided the film, uh, allowed the film to end in a, in a high note, in a very positive note. Um, so, Sean, you know, so one of the things that comes out clearly across that comes across out clearly in the, in the film is that the widening economic divide um, that's happening in this country uh, is not only tragic and immoral, uh, but that, as history shows, and as your film kind of shows, uh, it can be fatal to a society if not reversed. Um, can you give us some, you, you gave us one or two, but can you give us more of the facts and figures that you include in the film that show uh, how this divide, uh, how wide this divide is? Sure. I mean, um, one in four babies are born below at or below the poverty line. And that, you know, that was before COVID. Um, you know, the, the fact that $50 trillion was extracted from the middle and working classes, I mean, and in all, in, in history, any society that is this, um, divided, this is, is this, uh, divided economically, um, leads to civil war. Uh, a police state or an authoritarian government. And I don't think any of us, including the billionaires, want to live in a world that that comes to fruition. And we're we need to make that uh, that turn immediately. So, Dave, how did that happen? What was the turn in American history, recent American history, where that began to occur? And what were the forces behind that occurrence? Well, you know, what we see is like, I always consider like 1973 sort of the watershed year for all of that. Um, you know, that was the year Nixon, you know, 
started dismantling all of uh, LBJ's Great Society plans and, you know, cutting back on all of, all his incentives. Because when I when I started this project, one of the and I, I originally conceived this in like 2008 during the the first during the subprime crash. And I look back and I watched LBJ's 65 war on poverty speech. And what, you know, he said is he had the great speech, but then over the pre next eight years, even in the Nixon administration, poverty, you know, dropped from, I believe was like something like 25% to like 11%. So it was a great success. And then 73, you start having Milton Freeman in the Chicago school and those guys, you know, basically preaching greed. Um, you know, it's, you know, let's eliminate the minimum wage. Let's get rid of welfare. Let's get a, you know, let's uh, decrease the power of unions, all that. And I think that set it in motion. And then it went into hyperdrive, you know, come Reagan, you know, you can see what, you know, Reagan did with, you know, his trickle down economics, you know, Donald Laffer and all those guys. And they all just took that Chicago school and, you know, they, they took it to, you know, the umpteenth degree and, you know, and it, and it accelerated. And it's not just, you know, Reagan and the Republicans is, you know, you look at, you know, Clinton, Clinton, you know, he, those, Clinton and Obama, those guys, to, to, you know, when you look at them, they're not that far off from what Reagan, some of the stuff Reagan did. No, no, I, I was going to get to that, and let me get yeah. to it right now. And 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 either one of you can 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 chime in, and you too, Chris. But I, I got a lot of questions for you in a moment, if if you don't mind. Um, you know, some of us do forget that it was Bill Clinton, not Ronald Reagan, who signed NAFTA. Uh, the trade agreement that opened wide uh, the trade, uh, uh, the borders for trade in Canada and Mexico, and that it was Clinton with a Republican Congress uh, that granted China permanent normal trade relations, two things that, according to your film, cost millions and millions of good paying um, jobs uh, for Americans. How did the pro uh, corporate offensive that started, as you guys described, with, how did that become a bipartisan consensus? I, I think it's a, I think it was a, you know, a shift in politics. I mean, we can, I mean, we see it today. It's like everything seems it's, it's skewed more to the right. You know, even the Democrats, you know, started, you know, becoming right center. And, you know, you saw it like, you know, going back to Clinton, you know, I remember when he was running in 92 and I was out campaigning for Jerry Brown. I was my, I was in college and, um, and I remember, you know, he, he made a promise that he would cut welfare and food stamps and and Bush wouldn't do that. Bush, like I remember, like look back on it. I'm like, wow, George Bush actually said we need a social safety net, need to protect the, the most vulnerable people in our society. And then we hear have the Democratic, you know, uh, candidate is like, you know, I'm going to cut back on welfare and food stamps. And to me, it was shocking. And, and that's where I said, man, things are really shifting here. Things are really moving mm. to the right. And it's it, it's scary. And I think it's worse. It's like worse now. I, I'm seeing some hope with Biden. I mean, he seems to be kind of rolling some of that back and saying a lot of the right things, which I've been pleasantly surprised with. But mm. that's where I see, see it happening. It just seemed like it was like the end of, you know, the Bush administration into Clinton. And it just seemed to shift more to the right because the Democrats were, mm -hmm. you know, shifting more right center. Mm -hmm. So, so Chris, you know, uh, one of the reasons that one of the experts gave uh, um, in the film as to why NAFTA was so bad and so devastating is because 
Uh, by that time, the labor movement had been so devastated that they didn't even have a seat at the NAFTA table. They couldn't even shape it, you know. Now, that dismal state of the labor movement is still with us. In fact, it's gotten worse. And today, only 6% of the private sector is organized. You know, all the 6% of the jobs are unionized. That's less than under the, uh, the Hoover administration. But it was in this particular, it was in this milieu, this context, that you and a couple of your friends decided to unionize the mo one of the most powerful and one of the most rich companies in the world. Now, we know your story. You walked out because they didn't have COVID protocols and then they fired you. But I'm talking about the emotion, the, the, the emotional reason why you didn't walk away like 99% of people would have after they fired you. Why did you say, I'm fighting these people? Well, just like, uh, you know, history repeats itself. Um, the pandemic was, you know, this is the modern day Great Depression, you know. And uh, when you think about it, uh, not only did I get fired in the middle of the pandemic where, you know, I had nowhere else to really turn to. I had a lot of time on my hands, you know. And when Amazon tried to smear me, which added more fuel to the fire, um, you know, that that motivated me even more. You know, I wasn't going to allow this company to to smear me, calling me not smart or articulate. And they also said, ironically, to make me the face of the whole unionizing efforts against them. You know, I, I, I said, you know, enough is enough. You know, this is something that corporations play into uh, for years. And w when it comes to organizing in, in general and, uh, you know, the pandemic gave me the opportunity to to build this this network of power that we now have today, where we have the outside community uh, to to support us while we are fighting against this trillion dollar company. You know, we couldn't do it alone. I couldn't have done it alone. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the folks around me and the community around me, especially in New York area. And, and that's what it's going to take to fight back against, you know, these companies is is everybody. So. You know, I'm hoping once again, my journey is going to continue to inspire the folks to get involved. Well, you know, one of the film's uh, experts talks about how right wing Republicans, uh, I think at least one, at least one, maybe more than one, uh, try to inflame the divisions among Americans. And now, I, you know, I've been reading some progressive writers uh, argue that some of the uh, that 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 the left or elements of the left are also dividing America uh, with extreme versions of the diversity and identity ideology. One progressive writer, Christian Parenti, maybe you are familiar with him, has actually called that ideology the ruling class ideology. But in any event, you know, we see in the film, we see you, the, we see you and your team of organizers the day of the victory. And as you see in the film, you made diversity work. It's a multiracial, multinational, uh, you know, multinational group of of working class people who won. Why did it work for you? How did you make it happen? Well, that's what our campaign was based off of, bringing people together, you know, um, and where we meet them at is at work. You know, Amazon hires thousands of workers from all over the tri-state area, all five boroughs, including New Jersey as well. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we were going to make this work is is by people power you know it wasn't the amount of money because we didn't have any it's not because of you know resources because we we have bare minimum and the only thing we had was 
uh, earning the trust and building relationships. You know, that's some of the Amazon principles that I've learned as a supervisor there. But this time I use them to organize. You know, I use those tools, those same principles to bring people together, whether it was breaking bread, having barbecues, whether it was uh, handing out literature, uh, being out there for over 300 days at the bus stop. You know, I sacrificed time away from my family uh, and my loved ones to do that. You know, that that sacrifice um, and the fact that I was able to have several conversations, not just one, with uh, these, these workers, that that's what ultimately, you know, gravitated towards uh, uh, unionizing. And what you saw on our victory day was the fact that, yeah, we come from all different backgrounds. We come from all different ideologies. Um, but at the same time, the only enemy, it will always be our employer, you know, and that's what we kept it work related. As you heard me say to Lindsey Graham, it's not a left or a right thing. It's a yeah. worker's thing. Yeah. You know, in the film, I, we see you talking to a reporter and the reporter says, you think that Amazon is going to get low, you know, and, and really dirty now. And you say they can't get any lower. Um, but, you know, as we spoke last time, uh, we were talking about some reports that came out that the initial organizing group, there were some divisions among you now. And then a recent New York Times article also reported that there's some divisions among you now. And, and then sadly, most recently, your co-founder, your close friend, um, you know, volunteered to step away from the union because he was he's, you know, uh, charges of assault were were foisted at him that have nothing to do with the union. But given corporations being what they are, being Amazon, being what it is, have they used it or you foresee that they use any of this against you in negotiations and in your organizing efforts? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a part of what their tactics are. You know, union busting, uh, the number one thing is targeting the leadership, you know, and uh, this leadership is black and brown led, which adds another incentive on why they want to take us down. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have to deal with these struggles even within organizing. But, you know, these things are, are normal growing pains, especially with something that's brand new. And, uh, you know, I argue that every union in this country, every internal organization that you could think of, they have internal issues. And, you know, unfortunately, we're so public and, you know, a lot of people uh, definitely pay attention to our campaign that the media is just, you know, thirsty to put these narratives out there. But right. I can assure you that, uh, you know, my team is resilient. My core is still intact. And, you know, uh, as far as uh, our vice president, our former vice president, you know, uh, he's innocent until uh, proven otherwise. And we're going to support him uh, 100%. And hopefully, you know, uh, the charges will be dropped and uh, we can continue to focus on our contract because yeah. that's the number one focus right now. So, so, Sean, what is to be done? You know, um, what are, for time's sake, we have about three minutes left, three, a little more. Um, what are a couple of the key steps that you believe need to be taken in order to be able to breach this economic divide that has killed the American dream for so many, so many millions of Americans? So we don't have a lot of time left. Um, we, we're, rich, we're reaching this tipping point of uh, mass homelessness, um, uh, people staying basically in the middle class by just a massive credit. Um, and how do we deal with income inequality? It's very simple. We raise wages. 
If you raise wages, all this goes away. And if you if you're a billionaire or a billionaire family that owns a company that uh, everyone that works for them is on welfare because they're, they're unwilling, they certainly could pay the, the amount of money needed, but they're unwilling to do so. But 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 quick but quickly, Dave, if we don't if we don't succeed in breaching this gap, uh, what happens then? Well, I, I, I think it's going to get worse and it's going to fall in disarray. Uh, you know, one of the cases that got me to thinking about this project, you know, 15 years ago was I'm a big student of history and everything. And I, I was thinking about the fall of Rome and, you know, people always have this image of Rome of it fell because, you know, barbarians came over the borders and sacked Rome. But no, it was actually massive, like, income inequality that was the cause of all of Rome. I mean, it became where 95% of, of the population was living in poverty and 5% in wealth. There was absolutely no middle class. I mean, and it's kind of a stark, you know, reminder, you know, the French Revolution, same sort of thing. It's like, you know, once you start getting these widening gulfs, you know, it's going to come to a head. And it's like Nick Hanauer, who's in our film, was also an inspiration for this film when he wrote his op-ed piece, uh, The Pitchforks Are Coming For Us, talking about billionaires. Yeah. He's not far off. There's a breaking point. I mean, there's only so much you can do. You know, when you look at 44% of Americans are making $10.25 an hour or under, that's unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, you can see, like, even the fight for 15, that number is so far that it's so antiquated it's like you know it should be the fight for like 25 or 30 you know 15 so you know that's where we are i think we're at we're at a tipping point and people are starting to take it serious where we should have been looking at this this you know 20 years ago but now we're finally starting to take it a little bit serious so you and sean agree on that so we have less than 30 seconds left chris um you were the uh, the positive note at the end of their films. Be the positive note now. What do you see? Are you optimistic about your chances of negotiating a contract with Amazon? One hundred percent. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. And I I know the the international solidarity that we're building amongst Amazon workers across the world uh, is what's going to help bring Amazon to the table. Uh, the fight is just beginning, and we're not going to give up. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the film. It's very powerful. I, I hope a lot of people see it. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you, Raphael. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.